This is episode 04 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, December 7th, 2010. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. You're supposed to say it's free as in freedom now. <laughs> no, we had a script. I don't think we have a script. I don't know. Well, I figured you would. Oh, well, it's free as in freedom. That's the show. <laughs> and here we are. And um, this episode, we have two main topics that we're going to talk about. That's true. One is an article that was on LWN that is called The Dark Side of Open Source Conferences. And it's about um, the experiences that some women have had at conferences and sort of the policies that should be adopted generally. Yeah, it actually just wasn't that article because it linked on, there was a lot of uh, blogging activity yeah. around the issue. It links to some blogs and some blogs mm -hmm. link to it. So, mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of, it's more than just the one LWN article. And I'm and saying that because I don't know if it's going to be off subscriber only content by the oh, time this comes oh, I out. See. So I, I wanted to make sure people knew that there's other, and it'll be off subscriber content eventually. But. And the second topic we're going to talk about, just to let you know up front so that you can skip the first section if you're more interested in the second is the, um, is the, we're going to go over the um, Novell 8K, which is basically the Securities and Exchange Commission filing that Novell made to announce its acquisition. Right. For those who don't know, I guess most people who would listen to this probably know that uh, Novell has basically been bought or will be bought or is trying to be bought, and they've made various filings, and we're going to talk about those. Yep. So. So, <laughs> so now to the, the back. To, I just thought it would be good to have like a little... Just to, since we're talking about two distinct topics that we let people know right away so they can... And if they need to know time indexes, they could go to the show notes. Oh, yeah. That's a great idea. Um, you can actually do this. Uh, I'm going to take us off topic. Watch this. Um, <laughs> you, you, apparently, you can do this thing where you can embed segment things and chapters into recordings, but I don't know how to do that. And I've heard that you can do it with free software, but if somebody wants to teach us how to do that, the command line podcast guy does this. He makes chapters and stuff. So if somebody wants to teach us how to do chapters, they can email us. And if we can do it with free software, I'll do it. So, but for the Unless moment. Unless it takes too much work. Well, I'm no, I'll do it. I'll do it. If it's doable right. with free software, it's scriptable. I just scriptable, thought I right? would. I, I, well, it just depends how long it takes to figure well, things out and write the script. Long. I mean, I if somebody knows how to do it, they're going to teach us and then All we right. know. I'll do it. Don't worry. I'm not going to make more work for you. Thank goodness. You don't have to worry about it. I'll do it. <laughs> if somebody tells me how to do it, I'll do it. Anyway, if it, if it can be done with free software, of course. So Naturally. Get in touch if you know how to do that. Otherwise, you can use the the uh, analog method of going to the web page and looking at the show notes and finding the time indexes of the later segments. And in that, you will see that there's a time index for this about when we started talking about this topic we're about to talk about. Go ahead, this. Karen. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, you know, it's interesting. This is a topic that we've talked about, I think, a couple of times throughout the course of um, the Software Freedom Law, Law Show. I think this may be the, the first time. The old show. Time. The old show, um, which is pretty much the new show. But, no, um, it's not. It's a different show. <laughs> but, um, Does Fife sound like syphilis? <laughs> they don't sound alike. <laughs> Yeah, it's basically the same show in that we're here talking about things that interest show. us. Um, but 
Um, well, anyway, the issue about um, about women in free software generally is one that comes up quite a lot, and I don't know whether it comes up disproportionately for me because I am a woman involved in free software, or if I find it a little bit more interesting because of that. Um, but when I read this article, actually, my first impulse was to say, oh, thank goodness they found 10 other women to interview and not me. <laughs> and I actually said, why didn't they include you in that? Because she, the author did have to interview herself to make the 10th. I think the author wanted to include her okay, own experiences. And I think actually her experiences are so different than mine that I, or just um, particular to her that I think they really were worth including. But, but going back to what you said, I don't think it's an issue that uh, how did you put it that, that it's overly on your radar just because you're a woman? I, I don't mm -hmm. think that's true. Is that okay. a, I forget how you put it exactly. I, I don't remember either, but that's but the general it, sense. Because when I've, it, this has been an issue that, that I recognized, uh, early on. Um, so much, I mean, I, I, I've cared about this issue. My, my wife has a master's degree in women's studies and, and has taught me a lot about issues of gender equality and that sort of thing. Um, and I noticed very early on that there was this problem in the, the technical community in general. One of the things, and I'll link to this blog post I did a while back on this issue, um, I have a tendency to believe that this is actually a computer science-wide problem. Mm -hmm. I realize it's a little bit more acute in the free software world. I think it's actually a lot more acute in the free software world based on what I've read. I found some statistics that made it indicate... Oh, really? Well, for example, I, I this is in that blog post I wrote, the, the, the statistics of how many women uh, end up as full professors of computer science uh, was about the same percentage as some of the numbers that I've seen in free software. So the, the best of the best in computer science tend to have very underrepresented female uh, population, as do the best of the best in free software. I don't know that actually necessarily being a faculty member in a computer science department means that you are by definition the best of the best. Well, I, I, I think that there are all these selection processes. <laughs> I guess that's true. But, no, but I meant, I meant the point is getting to the highest. I didn't mean that they are, that only those people who are there are the best of the best. What I meant was the very top echelons mm -hmm. are, are not represented equally with women. Uh, very low percentages, and the the upper echelons of free software are the same. Are basically well, the but same if you kind look at, I, I would wonder if that would be true if you looked at um, proprietary software development positions, uh, because I think those were the statistics that people usually point to to show that. Oh well, the reason I wasn't considering that is because anyone who develops proprietary software is doing something extremely harmful and therefore I would never think of those people as doing the best work of the world I mean, ever. <laughs> one of the things that I think we've talked about More on the show think, before mm -hmm. is that, uh, and, and incidentally a lot of those academics are also producing proprietary True, software. True, less so, less, less so than somebody who's actually working for a proprietary software company. I, I agree with you. A lot yeah, well, what we were talking about, I think, on, a, on an earlier show was that, um, was that, you know, women may find it a little bit easier to fall into a proprietary software job and therefore may not examine these issues too closely because the recruiting is so um, intense for women. Um, I, I mean, I experienced it myself. It was a long time ago, but when I was in engineering school, it was um, I was bombarded by recruitment um, both by software companies and by engineering companies. Um, and you think that's more so even than in academics? Because well, I, yeah, because I mean, schools are. I mean, it's high. It, well, first of all, it's highly competitive to get to mm -hmm. uh, yeah, to sure. achieve academic success, and not that it's not highly competitive to get um, software development jobs. But if these companies are recruiting you and offering you very high salary, it may be just appealing to take that job and take that salary without thinking too closely about, um, you know, when you're you know twenty or whatever. Yeah, I mean, my, 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 the reason I say that is because in in the 
places where I've touched the academic computer science world, I've noticed a lot of heavy recruitment uh, trying to get women involved. Uh, I've, I've noticed that many of the academic environments uh, really encourage uh, women. For example, uh, the one, one woman who was ahead of me one year in computer science in my undergraduate institution, um, the faculty were very much pushing her to apply for graduate school and the graduate schools were really recruiting her once she did apply. Yeah. So, so I, I did, I did witness that, that there was a, that, that same kind of effect you're saying. I think that sometimes is true, but in practice, the politics of, of proceeding to a higher position and a, a faculty position, sometimes it works con counter to that. And I would be interested to see statistics about, you know, women who express a desire to have family at a certain age and um, how that all meshes up. It's quite complicated. I oh, mean, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things I think we were saying in that earlier show is that, you know, there aren't any real easy answers because there's so many factors at work. Um, but one thing that we know for sure is that we as a free and open source software community don't necessarily create the friendliest environment overall. Oh, and women. that I completely agree with. Uh, I, I just, I, the reason I got off on that topic and, and people will see that old blog post I'll link to was that somebody was, was basically claiming that this was a problem in the free software side of computers and it wasn't a problem in regular computing, which, well, which I really disagreed with. I, I think it, I think. I think it is worse here than it is potentially it may in be other, worse, but it's other still areas a huge problem. of computer science, probably not all areas of computer science. It's still a huge problem. I think uh, throughout computer science in general, I, I would certainly concede it's worse in our community than others. That's definitely true. And but, also, I mean, most of my knowledge is anecdotal other than mm -hmm. the few studies or articles I've read. And most of those have had some sort of like, yeah. you know, some sort of real press element to them. Yeah. Well, or, it's funny or when, I, when I looked for numbers, the only hard numbers done in this seemingly statistically valid way I could find were actually for computer science academics. Somebody had oh, oh, a study, I see. which I And that's why it's post. interesting for you to talk about. Yeah. So, but, yeah. but, but this, well, the, but this issue that came up mostly, we should probably get slightly more on topic with the issue that came up recently was specific specifically about one area. Well, right. And what I was going to say that was related to sort of the lead in was that I, I think about something that uh, that Scud Curley Robert uh, has said to me once when I was talking to her and I said that, you know, I, I had to um, prepare to, to give an interview on women in free and open source software. And she said, ah, it's the law about women in free and open source software, which is that if you are one, you will eventually have to opine on it. <laughs> and then, you know, it doesn't matter what your experiences are. People will identify you as an expert on free on, on women in free and open source software generally if you just happen to be a woman in free and open source software. But I think that what's interesting about this article, The Dark Side of Open Source conferences is that um is that it talks specifically about these women's experience at conferences and um and i think what's good one of the things i really liked about the article is that they talk about how valuable conferences are and how conferences actually help some of these women become more um invested and more interested in becoming more involved in free and open source software yeah and i, I think that actually is is gender and cross gender neutral and cross-cultural yeah. certainly uh, the way that I got involved with uh, free software is in great degree related to the fact that I, I basically at times in my life went into debt to go to the annual USENIX conference because I felt uh, this was before there was actually any other conference related to open source and free software. USENIX is more of an academic computer science conference, but it was the place where free software developers tended to go each year. And I went there every year because I knew that everybody in my community would be there. 
uh, and it's how I met RMS when I first met him. In fact, it's, it's how I, I end up in the middle of the first political, uh, situation of free software I ever got involved with because, uh, somebody saw that I was hanging around all in RMS and came up to me and said, yeah, we just forked GCC, uh, but we want to negotiate with FSF. That was David Edelson who had walked up to me. I just was hanging around more or less for RMS <laughs> and he just assumed I was with the FSF and I was like, okay. And I, that's how I got in the middle of helping negotiate the truce between the eggs fork and GCC. So for me, conferences were how I got involved. So, so I, I think it's correct for women or men or anybody from any culture, bring, going to conferences where there's lots of people in your field is an incredibly important factor for getting involved. So that part is definitely true. And I think true for everybody. Yeah, I think so. And especially since there's, you know, so much communication via email and through mailing lists and forums that I think we forget sometimes about how exciting it is to meet people face to face who are working on the same things as you are. And you get this real jolt of, of, of energy and creativity about what you're working on enthusiasm just from that connection that happens. The thing that troubles me about this as it relates to this issue is my belief has always been, as you were saying, this idea that doing things in email is the default way that things get done in free software. And I've always felt that, not always, but I've came to believe after having lots of trouble in my own relationships and interactions over email that email is a very dangerous way to communicate because people misconstrue and misunderstand and right a smiley and, face doesn't really convey that much nuance exactly <laughs> and so um so i've always felt that the the conferences were the way to get people to communicate in ways that were not as uh uh, as bombastic, I guess, as email can be. Uh, but this article is sort of troubling me because it, it, it seems like, at least for the experience of many women in the free software community, it, it doesn't work out that way. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. To, I'm not, I guess not surprised, but um, it was interesting to read how many examples there were of out-and-out -out harassment at these conferences. I mean, I've had mixed experiences, and I've certainly had discriminatory experiences, Um you know, where I was treated differently because I was a woman um, in a negative way. But and that, uh, why don't let you explain some examples of that? That's, for example, when you're in a booth kind of thing. And somebody oh, yeah. Well, it, happen it certainly happens at a booth where people assume that I'm not I'm I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm just there for sales or um, or if I if I'm signing it at a speaker's desk and there's um, a man who's standing there talking to me the person manning, manning, the person manning the speaker or womaning the speaker. It's usually a woman actually who is the admin who is waiting to hand out speaker badges and things will assume that the man I'm with is the speaker and not me. And um, you're a guest of the speaker. basically. Yeah. yeah. And that those kinds of things happen all the time. That happened with you and me. Yep. Uh, it actually, I, it actually I was wasn't, checking, was it that, wasn't the only time. It wasn't the only time. Yeah. But I had yeah. already checked in and then I was, I, as I recall, I was taking you there to show you where the ch ch speaker's desk check-in was. And then the funny thing was, is the person had already checked me in like two hours before and then assumed I was checking again when actually I was just delivering you to the place to check in because you didn't know where it was. Right. And uh, and they assumed that it was me checking. It couldn't be you checking in. It was me checking in again. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, so, 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 but, the, but the things described here are, yeah, are, are a lot worse than that. Yeah. Well, I was going to say actually about that, that we're still, um, you know, people assume that I'm not a developer and then it makes me feel really bad that uh, my primary involvement is as a lawyer. 
yeah. so well but to, you know but you, you have you have developed before well sure and i have technical knowledge that you know that is being generally discounted and you have along a degree with in engineering karen i mean it's not that's like you're, true uh, you're always worried about you're not technical but you're well no but I, I on this issue in particular i feel like the way that the way that we can most help this issue is by getting more women involved and more women um you know, actually developing free and open source software. And really, while other, while all contributions to free and open source software are valuable, and I don't think anyone would disagree with that, and writing documentation is really, really valuable. All of the, you know, we have so many needs in free and open source software that require such a wide range of people and backgrounds. So for example, marketing, there's so many things that we need, but on this particular issue, I feel like we're only going to to really push things forward by bringing a heck of a lot of women in to actually write code. Well, and, and, that's and I feel like, you know, I feel a little guilty, even though I feel like I'm contributing to free and open source software that I haven't been, you know, coding very much and pointing attention to the fact that I would be a woman, you know, actually developing. Well, I, I think the troubling thing about about Valerie's article here is that that she's writing from perspective being a kernel developer. Oh yeah, and saying that she she can't go to OLS anymore because of the harassment is is so is so at such a high level. Some of and, the stories are shocking. And and there's other develop there's other women who are developer. I mean, not not all the of the ten she interviewed are developers. I don't think Kat, no. Kat's a developer for no. example. No, and but, I don't think but, Deb is either. Um, right? Deb's not either, but Selena yeah. is, and sure. um, I think I think Mackenzie is. Mm -hmm. uh, so so a lot of the elite, at least a large majority or not majority, but at least the plurality here are developers. So well, it doesn't matter because the experiences that these women had were not related to them participating in any meaningful technical way. It, it, the the things that were described from being here are just the fact that they were a woman present in this conference. Yeah, I agree. But the thing is, is that is that obviously some of these incidents happened after they were known as developer, right? I mean, they're talking about going to conferences over a period of years where most of the attendees must realize they're a developer, even if some new ones Well, don't. but it's unclear whether yeah. these things happened with people who knew it's who true. they were weren't. It's true. Well, they, they, the names are clearly not here to protect the guilty. Um, I mean, you know, things, I would... Some of the things done here are illegal, right? I mean, some of oh, these things yeah. are, are... I mean, are, oh, absolutely. I mean, because what I was going to say is like I'm distinguishing here between, sure, I've been to you know conferences and been hit on in an appropriate... You know, had conversations that have been you know, where there was maybe a hint of flirtation, that's different. That's not, um, you know, at a social event, that's not, or, or as an aside, that's not necessarily inappropriate behavior. But this article talks about behavior that is beyond the pale, mm -hmm. um, you know, real assault. Well, inappropriate sexual touching. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's at least three incidents described in this article of that nature. There's this thing with Hans Reiser's oh, photograph. Awful. The, the Hans Reiser situation is one of the most difficult uh, things to talk about in our community and then using it as a, as a, as basically a, a misogynistic joke. Can I um, read, can I read the, um, the if, section? Cause if I, you want to. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, I just think that yeah. you, you have can a color, you, you, you know, you want, yeah. so, so, uh, it was, this basically was a quote from uh, one of the, um, the anonymous women interviewed, response. interviewed who chose to remain anonymous. And she said that, um, one event, a group of men put printouts of Hans Reiser on sticks and carried them around. They approached women, and possibly men, to tell us that every time we use EXT3, Reiser will kill another woman. Later, someone was caught up take, was caught taking upskirt photos of my friend's partner. Yeah, although although those those two events may have been discreet, and I might not have been the same people, which actually no, makes I mean, it, I think it actually makes possible, it worse. <laughs> but but whatever, yeah, like yeah, I just yeah. uh, amazing. 
Yeah, it's really I, amazing. The other the the example that follows from Mackenzie Morgan is is something that that I've experienced before as well, which is people putting inappropriate photos in their presentations. But uh, right, and that and there's the the the, the rather famous example of of that. The Ruby of, on of, Rails. There was a, a, a at a, at a Ruby on Rails conference, a, a CouchDB presentation that that uh, that had had inappropriate. Actually, it was all inappropriate pictures from yeah. start to finish. Yeah. Um, I did also actually go to a, a presentation where there were inappropriate photos, and the presenter was actually a woman. Yeah, I know you've told me about. It. Um, yeah. And I, I thought that was also inappropriate. Yeah, she thought I, it was acceptable because she was a woman. Yeah, I mean that's that's the danger of of it, there's a there's a certain danger in that that, that basically th- that that makes a slippery slope of of then a guy could say well if a woman could do it then I should be able to which actually kind of makes sense. Um, but they were both wrong in the first place. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's basically how it comes up. Um, and so, and so, I mean, I think I, one of the things that is troubling to me about this article is a lot of the incidents described, I mean, a lot, the whole article is troubling, but, uh, one of the things that bothers me is a lot of the things described here seem to have happened at various different reception type events. Mm-hmm. So it's and and in a number of cases they're talking about alcohol being involved, and I've always wondered what the necessity of having alcohol at all these events. Not to think that we should somehow be Puritans and not and not consume alcohol, but I think that a lot of people who who are, if you have a class of people who many of whom are already immature, which the fact of the matter is, if this is happening, you have a group of people who are probably pretty immature. Already, if, the, if the, at least some subset that is willing to do stuff like this, because you've got to be pretty immature to do these kinds of things. When you take immature, it's like taking teenagers, and when they have alcohol, they get worse. I don't know. I I think that there's, you know, I've I've attended many social events connected to professional activity in many different fields, and I think that um, when you have alcohol in a function that is truly a professional one, where the mindset of the participants is a professional one. And I'm including from back when I was a securities lawyer going to deal dinners and things like that, where a lot of the, some of the people working on the transactions were in their early 20s, you know, were quite young. Um, people behaved, behaved appropriately because, you know, there was a certain professionalism that, that, you know, was, was part and parcel of the event. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it's necessarily the, you know, the presence of alcohol that makes it, um, problematic. I think that it's this lack of professionalism and general lack of respect. Well, I guess my point is that you have to have a certain level of existing maturity to be able to handle to handle an, an event that's supposed to be a professional event that also has alcohol involved. Well, and my what I'm saying is, is that, that those people maturity. who are participating in those events that I went to that were um, connected to deals that I had completed as a securities lawyer were completely inappropriate and other, like were, you know, were, didn't have that maturity, but they got the message loud and clear about what the event was and how people should be, should conduct themselves and they behaved appropriately. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think having like a zero tolerance for this kind of behavior by the organizers, but also by the participants makes makes this, you know, much, much, much less of an issue. If someone had said a sexist comment in one of those, you know, securities related dinners, the entire room would have gone silent and that person would have been asked to leave. Like, you know, I mean, that's just the 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 overall feeling that was perpetuated because we, you know, that that was the professional event that was established. Yeah, I, I I understand your point. I I just think that that 
maybe parts of our community are so immature that that we can't even handle it you know that that's i don't know i think i i just i think when you say that you're basically providing an excuse yeah i don't mean it to be that because i think that and i don't think that removing alcohol will necessarily change that because i think some of these experiences happened Mm -hmm. without alcohol i bet yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, I mean, and and to be clear, I'm talking about the the issue of the the people who perpetrate drinking. I mean, I think people the people the people who are perpetrating these things, people who are doing these things. Um, mm-hmm. I just think people's. I've generally seen in my life that people's behavior, people who are already bad badly behaved, their behavior gets worse when they drink, right? And so, and so, if somebody's like is like a real jerk, they're they're horrible when they're drunk. It just gets worse. Right. And so my, my thought is, can we mitigate it somehow? I just think it's a red herring because so many of these, so many of these are happening, these experiences are happening when alcohol is not involved, like exhibition floors, for example. Yeah. Well, the alcohol is often available. Uh, Usually not. And usually not. This behavior is not a product of of drinking. A lot of the touching stuff seems, seems to have all been related to the party events. Well, it's unclear. Yeah. It seemed, it seemed to be that way. Um, which is really when it, when it, it goes to a whole nother level when, when touching is involved. Like there's the one thing of people saying things, um, or acting in certain ways, but when they're actually physically touching another person, that's, that's, it goes way beyond that. Only one, possibly two of these, um, things that are cited happened where at a bar where mm-hmm. alcohol was likely, mm-hmm. it's unclear about the others, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they were, if they happened at other times in the conference. Yeah, I, I yeah. I, I, I think know. I was at the um at the conference party that um that Deb refers to when she says that um there were strippers hired to mix with people at an event that people attend. You know, everyone I, I was there too. I, no, I don't think they were. I don't think they were strippers, strippers. <laughs> but there there were women who were specifically hired. To and it did get make everyone done. uncomfortable. Yeah. 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 I remember at the the OSCON that Microsoft very heavily participated in. They hired a lot of attractive women as part of their um, their contingents. Like, um, oh really? Oh yeah. I don't remember that. Oh yeah, and um, and they weren't. It was really interesting. They weren't exactly booth babes, but they were clearly women who had been asked to attend the event because they were attractive women. Um, you know, and when I tried, I tried to talk to a few of those women to see what they were about because I was really curious. Mm-hmm. And um, and everyone had um, the most they could say about their participation in Microsoft was that they were in marketing, and they wouldn't say anything else. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's often true that that. They, I said, oh, what products are you, you know, are you involved with? Or, you know, what do you think about the, con-? you know, that, that was it. That was, I'm, I'm in marketing. Oh, and- so your theory would be that they were, they were involved in product lines unrelated to whatever it was. Yeah. Microsoft was I, to do. I, that is my theory. They weren't from Sam Ramsey's group is what you're saying. I, I would yeah. doubt it that yeah. there were that many mm. people slash women. Yeah. Well, all in marketing. True. All for, in this all small. For Sam. <laughs> <laughs> the Sam doesn't even work there anymore for that matter. I think his whole division's gone. Um. Uh, I guess they declared victory. Um, in any event, I always think it's worth pointing these things out because the more we talk about it and the more we think about it, the less likely it is to happen again. Well, I, I think that, I, well, I think the entire, this is sort of going to my point, which is where I was getting at with the alcohol thing, is I think the whole maturity level of the community has to, to raise. There, there's a there's a high level of of immaturity in the free software community generally about these issues. I think the place where I agree with everybody when they say free software is worse, it's that it's that the level of discourse and knowledge about um, 
gender issues in the free software community is worse than most other places that I've seen. Hmm. Most other communities that I've seen. Communities that have, you know, taking, taking for granted that there are communities with highly educated people who are very intellectually advanced, which is basically true of free software. If you compare that to other areas where people have to be just as intellectually capable, uh, you find a lot less sexism. My experience is anecdotal, but um, when I started college and was spending a lot of time in my uh, college's computer center, it was awful. I mean, it was that was a long so, uh, not to so, say what your age is, but that was a long time so ago. So sexist. By the time I graduated, it was significantly less so, and I think it's because I spent almost every day there. <laughs> yeah, but it was awesome. And I got other women to spend every day there. And it was in such a short period of time. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a, a young class of mostly men who are tech technical. Um, I don't, I agree it was a while ago, but not that long ago. But my, my point is basically that, that it was a long time ago and it's, it, these things still are not resolved. Oh, well, yeah. And, and, and there hasn't been a lot of advancement on this issue. Well, it's funny because I was talking to my mother about issues like this. Um, she really likes the show Mad Men. And one of the things that she likes about it is that she says that when she watches it, it reminds her exactly of how things used to be and how she has forgotten because things have changed so much. And, you know, one of the things that she cites over and over again is how women were treated in the workplace and how, you know, she was a part of that. She was in the workplace. She experienced that. And now where she, you know, were someone to say some of the things that men had or people in the workplace had said to her at the time, she would just walk out right now and be outraged. But then it was just a part of doing business. And um, she thinks often about this as a really positive thing and how far we've come societally. And I think that's that's really neat. But some of these things made me think of it. Um, well, and that's and that was Kat's point that because she she Kat Allman has been involved in technical conferences for a lot longer than than most people interviewed, I think. And she was pointing out that 25 years ago that that tech conferences were much worse, and the types of things that people would say uh, were much worse. Um, so that that I guess is progress, but it's certainly slow progress. Yep. So I guess we've covered this issue as fully as we can. Yeah, I, I mean, there are no easy answers. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's helpful to talk about it. Um, I was grateful not to be interviewed. I, 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 was... I would be interviewed in future if anyone wanted. <laughs> <laughs> but um, okay, yep. so so uh, so I guess uh, I guess uh, I encourage people to read all this uh, stuff. Uh, and I, as I said at the beginning of the segment, I don't know when uh, this will go past subscriber. Um, and technically, I could give a uh, no non-subscribe like uh, one of these free links but and put it on our website but i don't think lwn likes it when you do that um so and you should subscribe anyway probably so we'll uh so we'll link to we'll, the we'll, unsubscriber link and you can subscribe right. and it'll become a real presumably it'll become an open link when when the thing goes non-subscriber and now we'll and there's the other blog post too. and now we'll take a musical interlude In the next segment, there's some of that buzzing in the background. I just want the listeners to know it clears up about uh, eight minutes in, so bear with us. I really hate talking about companies buying companies, because I don't <laughs> care, really. Well, 
this is not just companies buying companies. It's also other companies with other companies buying patents. Well, none of the <laughs> who owns what and why I don't really care about because that's just all rich people stuff. But uh, I don't really understand that. Okay. Well, and the, the the reason I care is because the, the reason I'm even talking about this is because it could have an impact on free software. Because I don't really care what happens to these companies. Well, I mean, this is a free software oddcast. We're not going to talk about anything that doesn't relate in some way to free software. We talk about stuff that doesn't relate in some way to free software. You all largely the time. talk about stuff that doesn't relate to free software. You brought up Buffy <laughs> the Vampire Slayer last time. Did I? Yeah. I don't remember that. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I totally don't. I must have been I mean, relevant I in some way. I talked about it with you. It's not that I didn't participate. It was that you originated it. Anyway, bored now. Yeah, see, so you did it again. <laughs> so, um, so th- this thing about Novell. You're yeah, the, you're the expert. Well, I'm not the expert. I just, you know, having been a securities lawyer, I went straight to the SEC's website and took a look at the filings, if that's what you mean. Yeah, that's what I mean. You're the expert. You know how to read this stuff. Well, actually, there's been a lot of um, a lot of discussion of, I think there's some good discussion about the, um, the acquisition already online. Um, for example, I thought that Andy Eptegrove's blog was actually... Pretty good when I took it. Was it was long-winded, but I, but I think wrote mostly accurate. <laughs> but so he did what I, I we just I just found it actually because um, he did what I was about to do, which is to go line by line or sort of paragraph by paragraph through the AK. So if you if you ever hear about a transaction happening where um, one company is buying another or something like that, and one of the companies is a public company, so traded on an exchange like Novellis, um, you can go to the SEC's website and take a look at their filings. Because if something material happens, meaning something that is relevant to the company as a whole um, on some significant financial level. And uh, for our non-US listeners, the SEC is the Securities Exchange Commission. (laughs) Which is the, I guess, the regulatory body for any public companies. Is that right? Yeah. Well, and also some private transactions too for securities. Yeah. And tra- um, by transaction, you mean trading, buying or selling anything bought and sold. Not any. Well, I guess something that it could be also things that are processed that okay. are then bought and sold. Yeah. Um, because some commodities trading is. Right. Very <laughs> but because yeah, like transaction <laughs> to computer geeks is going to mean like a database transaction. Like oh, oh I see. That's why I want to make. Yeah, any kind of corporate transaction. Yeah. So, um, so you can just go straight to the SEC's website. Um, I think I already said the Securities and Exchange Commission already. By the way, in full. But. Um, it's sec.gov and you can go there and see um, what they file about it. And sometimes they'll file things right after announcements have been made. And if they do so, they'll file something called a Form 8K. And um, that basically has press releases and things like that that are, um, are material um, changes in the company's status. Then over time, they'll file... Um, more information. So if you're sort of curious about what a company's up to, you can look at their latest 10K, which is an annual filing, and it will talk about sort of information more generally that has been, um, you know, that, that, that is relevant as of the time that they file it and for the financial year that they're covering. So periodically, I just look at the annual reports of different companies that I'm interested in just to see. It's sort of like looking at a, a nonprofit's 990. It's kind of the same thing. We did actually talk about this in connection with Novell once before. Yeah. 
But <coughs> why why do they both end in K? If they're different, why is it eight K and ten K? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. The foreign ones are N and F, so like a twenty F is the annual filing for a foreign organization. Um, I don't know what the K stands for. Okay. I should know. So uh, we don't know what the K stands for, but that doesn't matter. Um, so so the only thing that, that so so there are th- th- so when we talk about things, uh, I'll, I'll try. So we often talk about the things that are. Uh, copyrights, trademarks, and patents in free software, because those are the things that impact the freedom of software most commonly, uh, if it's already free software. Obviously, if it's proprietary software, there's also this proprietary EULA, but our software doesn't have that stuff. So we're worried about where are the patents, where are the trademarks, where are the copyrights, generally speaking, because that's what's going to impact the freedom of the project most likely. So when I look at one of these things, I don't care who's getting what money. And there's lots of analysis of how the money moves around and whether Attachmate gets money if the novel does something or whatever. Uh, that doesn't so you matter. should say who Attachmate is. Just so give it. Attachmate's give the, a very general oh, yeah. so Attachmate's the, the acquirer, I guess. Although mm-hmm. they may one not a, be sort of a partial acquirer. Yeah. So it's a part of the problem is that we don't have all the information about the deal. We only have the information that Novelle and its acquirers um, or the people that it sold its patents to have chosen to make public at this time. And some of that is meeting the requirements of the SEC, um, the Securities and Exchange Acts, but but some of it is also press. And so we have this really kind of strange collection of information that doesn't have everything in it yet. And there's a lot of mystery here. Well, I I don't think there's that much mystery. It's it's pretty much... Bad. I generally think that any change in the status quo with these kinds of companies that are involved in free software um, is bad for free software. It always just tends to be the case. And my the reason I think that is because I think um, the the free software parts, or I guess I should say actually open source parts of the businesses uh, that that there tend to be the more experimental parts of these businesses and they're the most likely thing to get impacted negatively by any change because mm-hmm. there'll be a drift towards a more conservative type of, uh, of activity and open source quote unquote activity tends to be the less, the more liberal activity. So I'm, I always assume that anytime one of these things happens, like the, the Oracle buying sun, I knew it was going to be bad for free software no matter what. Well, it's sometimes hard to tell. So in this deal, for example, the, um, Novellas, so there, there are two, two deals that are happening in the one deal and they're actually, um, reliant on each other. So, um, in the one deal, this company called Attachmate is buying Novelle. Which Attachmate's, uh, I, I researched, it's a 100% proprietary software company. They've mm-hmm. never, as far as I can tell, done anything free software related ever in their existence. Mm-hmm. Bad news. Um, and there's a kind of a subset of that deal where Elliott Partners, which is this investment company that has been a shareholder in Novelle, um, had had come in with an offer at some point earlier to um, to purchase Novell, which sort of put Novell's sale on the table. Um, and the directors of the company basically have to evaluate, is the offer in the company's interest and is it in the shareholders' interests um, and, and, and act accordingly. So um, if you heard a buzzing until now, we're really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not, I think we're, we're going to. I think we're going to press on. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to re-record. But uh, I just removed the buzzing if the buzzing was there. And then the second part of the transaction is is a sale of of a, I, I think a large number of patents to a consortium, which according to the press releases has been organized by Microsoft. 
So there are these two pieces of the transaction. So when Attachmate is purchasing Novell, they are in fact not purchasing Novell as it stands today. They're they're they are theoretically purchasing Novell minus um, those patents. So it's kind of interesting. And then further, what what made me stop you from what you were saying before, Bradley, is that um, is that the way that the that the um, it looks like this transaction is structured is such that. Um, Novell, as the company as it is now, is going to be the surviving entity, and it will be a subsidiary of Attachmate. So instead of of um, of basically having a, a merger where the original Novell goes away, basically the original Novell will continue to exist, and and that's meaningful because to the extent that there are already contracts in place with that company Novell, they don't need to be amended, and they're still in place. Did that make any sense? Yeah, but I, I don't. I guess I don't see. What impact that has for free software, one way or the other? Well, I'm not sure, but one thing that's a little bit different than in other situations that we've talked about in the past is that um, Novell, at least now, seems like it will continue to exist as Novell. Yeah, although the 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 at least assets, from a corporate perspective, but the assets are moving. But that's the, the issue. Well, some of the assets are moving. Well, the assets we care about, right? I said this at the beginning. Well, there was Copyrights, also, trademarks, and patents. Where are they well, going? Well, there was an well, both places. So that's the thing is that some will be staying with Novell and some will be sold to this consortium. That's perhaps you know that's I would say I guess organized by probably led by Microsoft, and it's unclear who else is in that consortium. So you know it's it's a little unclear because, for example, um, there was an amended 8K that announced that uh, more recently that the Unix copyrights were staying with Novell, for but that, example. See. That's, I actually think that that whole thing about people talking about the Unix copyrights, I, I almost feel like that story was planted so that they could come out and announce that everything was going to be fine. Because we already know the Unix copyrights don't matter. The Unix copyrights stopped to matter when Unix wasn't a widely used operating system anymore. When GNU Linux systems basically became the default Unix-like system that people used, that's way back in the end of the 90s when the Unix copyright started um, Stop matter. I remember, this is the funniest thing about the whole Scope case is because I remember distinctly when Novell acquired the Unix copyrights. It was a huge story in the tech press, yet nobody actually believed it happened because Scope was claiming that it never happened. Of course, the, it was adjudicated and clearly said that Novell did hold them, but they never mattered because Scope was never able to show that Linux was in any way a derivative work of the Unix copyrights because we all know that Linus wrote Linux from scratch to work like a Unix kernel. And, and we part. all know that GNU was written from scratch to work like everything else for a Unix-like system. So there was never a worry that the Unix copyrights matter. So I don't care what happens to the Unix copyrights. And None of us should care whatever happens to the Unix copyrights. They can go to Microsoft for all I care. Microsoft can spend the rest of its days suing IBM and HP over AIX and HPUX and any other product lines they have still based on the Unix stuff that would be an oracle over over solaris right they can do that all fine because GNU linux will be safe and i'm not really worried about the proprietary unices and uh pam jones make alludes to this as well in her uh her grok post but, yeah um, well pam jones and i don't often agree uh but she has a point about a lot of this stuff i i think she's right that that um that it's it's really showing that there isn't a lot of Infrastructure. I think her main point was there's not a lot of infrastructure to protect the free software activities unrelated to this Unix copyrights issue. So the patents issue 
is out there. She talks about the mono issue and where does mono mm-hmm. go and is mono protected Well, right, now? and the reason why I brought this up in the first place was because you said, you know, well, all the assets are moving, and I said, well, it's really unclear. So when I talked about the mm-hmm. mysteries of this transaction, we're basically getting small bits of information as they come out, and clearly some are remaining with Novell, and, and, and certainly patents are being sold or, you know... But my whole point is that there are no copyrights that Novell has that it matters where they land. Here's why. One is this whole Unix copyrights rant I just gave. So we don't care where they go. It doesn't matter. Microsoft, actually, it's good for us if some, if some litigious party gets the Unix copyrights, actually, because they could increase GNU Linux adoption by shaking people down over the Unix copyrights. So, the other copyrights Novell has that we care about are free software copyrights already licensed to the public under free software licenses. So it doesn't matter who gets those, they're licensed under irrevocable free software licenses and we always have that code base. They can take it proprietary, but Novell could have done that at any time anyway for the copyrights that it has, at least things it holds copyright solely on. So I, I don't think so we you're have saying to- the only valuable assets that uh, Intel. No, not valuable. The only, the the only, only assets we have to fear are the trademarks and, and, the and patents. patents. Oh, the trademarks too, right? The SUSE, if the SUSE trademark yeah. ends up in a bad spot, it could be bad for the SUSE Yeah, community. but more, more patents The patents are the big else. worry. And yeah. there's these 822 patents that are going to end up in the hands of a consortium that we know to be controlled by Microsoft. That's, that's the only thing in this whole goofy deal mess that we should really even bother to care about. Uh, now, not to say that's not an important worry, but it's really the only thing that's going to affect free software one way or the other, in my view. I don't know. Do you disagree? Uh, no, I mean, I think that the patents are the most interesting part of this and the, 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 the most worrisome, for sure. Um, you know, so... No, I mean, I agree with that part. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I, I think... And Andy Updegrove, in his post, strangely comes up with a possible benign reason that Microsoft want to acquire these patents, that they want to make some friendly OIN-like cross-licensing pool, which first of all assumes OIN is any good at all, which I disagree with. Um, and second of all, it assumes that Microsoft ever has a benign intent towards uh, Well, look, anything. I mean, as patent pools go, I don't think that, I think that's an unfair criticism of OIN. I mean, patent pools have their use as long as you're participating in patent pools. And I'd rather that a patent pool be OIN than this Microsoft consortium. Uh, tr- so, true enough, but, so, but I, know, I, I think... Uh, uh, the, I just the, disagree with that. Well, the OIN patent pool is so narrow, you, you you can't even walk on it in three dimensions. But um, the 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 thing that Microsoft's likely trying to do is to acquire patents for more patent shakedowns because that's a big part of their business model now. So I, I think considering any other possibility other than that is is sort of just a blind alley. That's got to be what they want to do. Um, they've wanted. Well, to- I've heard also the um, proposition that. Um- there were the theory that they were merely acquiring the patents for patent for their own patent safety, um, which I can't say is particularly convincing either. Well, it's not. Although on the other hand, um, if this is the if this is a part of the next round of the patent hot war, long, while that's short term bad for free software, I'm, it's not clear to me it's long term bad. Even having just said the how horrible it is, I actually think the patent war we have going on now is probably a long-term good for free software in a lot of ways. Because I think that the idea that people are suing each other constantly over software patents will increase the cost of holding software patents. Right, and I think you've said everybody. that here before. Yes. Um, so it know, could and help. We're, we're seeing that in the mobile space right now. It's yeah, becoming just, let's just keep it going. Kind of ridiculous. Keep it rolling. I mean, keep I don't know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the point is, the point is, if, if, if we have 
decimation of, of the patent holding infrastructure, right? If all these companies suddenly realize that it's not in their interest, they'll start lobbying Congress to get rid of software patents because it's bad for their business. I, I've tried to talk the companies that claim that they're not going, they're on the right side of this, like Google and Red Hat to go out there and lobby and they won't. Um, I, I, why? Because they hope, probably hope someday they'll be enough holding enough patents that they can be the bully. Right, right now, IBM is this big, uh, gigantic bully of patents, and Microsoft's trying to become one too, and everybody else aspires to get there. Which relates to another point about this. That I think that the thing we have to look at about this acquisition is that patent promises are not enough. This is yet another example of this, because think about even if Novell had a patent promise, which they didn't, it would be, it would be null and void because when Attachmate or whoever or this consortium, whoever gets hold of the patents, they don't have to uphold that promise because the promises rarely extend beyond the existing entity. They don't extend. Right. And actually, entity. this is something that, um, that Pam points out as well, that, um, that because Novell was distributing their, um, was distributing under TPLV2, that there are license, you know, that there is implied patent licenses. Well, there is the, the V2 implied patent license. Um, I, I think Section 7 is stronger than it is. I've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. Um, Jeremy Ellis and I are the last two who believe. Well, I don't think that, that's true. That, that Section 7 is anything beyond. Well, I mean, everybody agrees there's an implicit patent license in, mm -hmm. v, in GPLv2. I think, I think I actually believe Section 7 has a certain power of preventing patent licensing that contradicts GPL. But anyway, uh, I don't know if anybody else believes that anymore. Um, I, I certainly haven't been able to convince anyone of it, um, that I've tried to convince. Um, but, Nonetheless, I think it's an example of why GPLv3 is better with regard to patents, and and uh, I I give Pam Jones credit for pointing that out, although it's already been has already been pointed out before too. Um, I I I think I think it's an interesting outcome because I've often complained about the fact that GPLv3 grandfathered in the Microsoft Novell deal. I didn't mm -hmm. think we had to do that. Uh, RMS's argument for doing it was that he felt it wasn't necessarily fair because some people didn't actually legitimately did not believe yep. the implications of V2 said that. It's a reasonable argument. Uh, I don't think it mattered that much. I don't think we needed to grandfather the deal in. Um, but the upside of gra grandfathering that deal in is that Novell has shipped software under GPLv3. Mm -hmm. Specifically, GCC is in so the, the newer versions of GCC under GPLv3 or in SUSE. So there are cases where they have shipped code under V3 and therefore have granted the stronger patent licenses that are required to be granted when you distribute code under V3. So that is a help. And I, I sort of have to look at, look at my own positions and say, well, maybe there was a benefit there uh, to allowing Novell to distribute under V3 under the Microsoft Novell deal because it gave licenses to their own patents. That's really interesting. So I could have, it could have actually been a better strategic move than I realized at the time because I felt it was better to punish Novell for entering the deal with Microsoft uh, than it was to to give them permission to ship under V3. But the fact that they got permission to ship under V3 under that deal, and therefore not with regard to Microsoft patents because obviously the Microsoft patents didn't come into play because of the yada yada, but the Novell patents were in play and would have been licensed if they happen to be implemented well, in so those GPLv3 versions. Sort of a, when we're on this train of thought, what do you think about the idea that some people have been banding around that um, that the acquisition of these patents by Microsoft is is an, the next step in its strategy following the Microsoft Novell deal? Well, I, I, I try not to wonder about what businesses are trying to do or not to do, in part because... I don't think these businesses actually have the grand plans. I mean, we, we like to attribute 
to Microsoft like they have some sort of long-term anti-free software plan. Um, I think Microsoft is an anti-free software company, but I don't think they really have a strategic plan for it. I think it's much more idiosyncratic than that. I think Steve Ballmer just has this, uh, you know, let's go after Linux today, wakes up one morning and decides that and tells somebody to do it. And then somebody gets invested in doing it. For example, uh, the, the patent licensing division of Microsoft probably makes a revenue stream now by shaking down Linux companies. Uh, when and and therefore that's a revenue stream for them. Therefore, it's black on their uh, on their their balance sheet, and they keep doing it for that reason, not necessarily because they hate free software, but because they love money. Because that's what for profit people do. Well, that's what for profits are organized for. Well, that's for uh, profit. Yeah, it's disgusting, but. Um, oh come on. Well, if your if your primary goal in the life is to pursue the love of money, I mean, you're never going to turn out doing the right thing most of the time. I'm not speculating. I, this, the, the argument on the, or the discussion about this is I'm actually yeah. looking at the clock. Our, our cast has gotten really long. That's true. But I, I, I think, I, I think. So I'm not, definitely not going down that road this time. Fine. Okay. Well, you can, you can reserve the right to argue that with me later. Um, probably off, offline. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. What, what do you, what do you think all of it means anyway? I really don't know. I mean, I, I just find it really curious, and I'm more of a wait-and-see kind of person, so I'd like to see what actually happens. I mean, I think we'll start seeing some more information as time goes by. I think the the I think something like it, the transaction won't close before the end of January, but um, but in any event, it expects to happen in first quarter. There'll be more filings. One of the agreements was filed, um, so there's a little bit more, more detail there. Um, eventually... If the patents are transferred, there'll be some assignments registered with the patent office. So we'll see more there. Yeah. Well, I, I think I think that the, the the one of the things that I didn't mention yet is uh, when economic times are tough. That's the most time there's danger for a principled way of operating, right? So. I, I, I think one of the one of the places we might agree is that is that, that maybe it's true that Novell's goal was to mostly try to do the right thing for free software most of the time when it fit their business interest. And when times are tough and Novell's needing to find a buyer and all these sorts of things because they can't make the company, I presumably can't make the company profitable themselves, and therefore that's usually when somebody looks for a buyer. Well, it's unclear. I mean, you know, it's it's really I mean it's unclear to me looking at it from an outsider as to how the chain of events happened because sometimes when a company um, looks vulnerable for purchase, either because um, it could be, you know, it could be gotten at a, an attractive price, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the company was necessarily looking for for a way out or... But people only sell their businesses when they can make more money by selling the business than keeping the business running. Well, it's a public company. So, you know, there's a duty to shareholders and actually probably any company, but especially in a public company, there's a, a duty to shareholders and there's a, a, but this a is price not, per share. And if but a, this is not a hostile takeover. It's not like they're trying to keep them Well, no, it's buying. not. It hasn't been approved by the shareholders yet. There actually has already been um, at least one shareholder suit uh, that uh, that same I like oh, keep mentioning that same Grocklaw um, post mentions. So there there are there are at least two lawyer uh, two law firms looking for Novell shareholders that are interested in disputing the um, you know the transaction the decision by the board. So you know it, it hasn't been approved by the shareholders yet, mm -hmm. just by the board. 
Well, is, is, are, Although are, there is, there are, and actually Andy talks about this, that there's, uh, you know, there are detriments to not following through with this agreement now. So, you know, once the, once these agreements have been put in place, it's basically there are penalties for backing out. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I hope that this shows is that, is that, uh, I think a lot, I think that when, when Jeremy Allison quit Novell, um, in protest over the Microsoft Novell deal, um, it was, you know, by, by himself and, and other people did not really protest over, over the way Novell was going. And my hope is, uh, yeah, I would actually like to, to see the giant sucking sound of free software developers leaving Novell to go to other places. Um, I don't want them all to end up at Google, which is who will try to eat them up, I'm sure, because we don't want any company to have too much control over the majority of free software developers. But I, I've never felt Novell was a trustworthy company. Of going back, you don't really form. feel that any company is a trustworthy company. <laughs> That's mostly true. Although I, I think Novell was always much more dangerous. In part, maybe because they were always much more vulnerable in, in the sense you're talking about: mm. vulnerable for takeover, vulnerable for the Microsoft Novell deal, right? I mean, there's no fear of a Google Microsoft deal because Google would laugh, right? And so, and so, well, so unless when it, it were somehow in Google's advantage to do so. Yeah, but it's not because they're so strong and powerful. It's it, it's when 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 companies are 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 weak and scared enough to make really problematic deals, but not so weak that they're just going to go away that's sort of the most dangerous moment uh, that's when the the little the little graph that i have in my mind of how bad <laughs> companies are that's when it gets to the absolute worst and that's where i kind of feel novell has been for many years that's interesting <laughs> i you know i i i'm torn because i think we should wrap it up because okay. basically we'd move on to other topics and it's already been yeah. so long okay but um but yeah i mean we'll see what happens if there's news that comes up in the meantime i think there's so much we haven't talked about in this transaction already that maybe we'll talk about it next time or the time after depending on how the news cycle goes okay all right and until then free as in freedom is produced by dan lynch of halfbakemedia.com thanks to mike tarantino for our theme music Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Please provide any feedback to Ogcast at faif.us. So uh, 10Q is quarterly. So the Q is quarterly for um, in that context. So K just means annual. K also means potassium. Buzzing. No buzzing. Buzzing. <laughs> no yeah, buzzing. The half-life of potassium is 1.32 times 10 to the ninth years. Do you know that this buzzes when I plug this in? <laughs>